If you have a Bible with you, open it to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. As we have been going through uh, the book of Deuteronomy, as we follow it through the Ten Commandments, we believe that Moses is explaining the law, particularly the Ten Commandments, and now we come to the Eighth Commandment, the commandment that you should not steal. Like the commandments that have gone before, we understand that this is likely uh, a larger issue than simply not taking what belongs to other people. Unlike those commandments, though, I think that these command, this particular commandment is probably much more difficult for many of us to keep ourselves from. Stealing is much more common than murder. The very beginning of this and where we need to understand just from the initial start is the fact that God is creator over all of the world. He has made all things. And in scripture, because he has made all things, he owns all things. If you make it, you own it. And because everything has been created by God and there is nothing that has been created that wasn't created by him, he is all in all and therefore he owns everything. It is all his. There is nothing in this creation that does not belong to him. Your life, your breath, your very being belongs to him. And therefore, because he is the potter, he can do with the pot what he wishes. He molds the clay as he wants. It all belongs to him. Nevertheless, the very mention of this commandment indicates that God has done something particular with his creation. Not only has he created people to belong in his creation, but he has also created things for them to have that you truly possess. So while we might say that God is the owner of everything and you are only a steward of it, you are indeed a steward of it, and it indeed belongs to you and not to others. At the very least, this says something about communism, and it says something about the idea that the state owns everything and you get to borrow from them. No, no, that's not how it works. God has given you the things that you own. It also implies that owning things in itself is not necessarily wrong. God has given them to you to own. As a matter of fact, he does this sometimes specifically because we need to own things in order to live. We need to have storehouses of grain. We need to have roofs over our heads. Those need to be ours, and we need to be responsible for them. So God has given those things to us. This means that people who read, for instance, Acts 2, at the very end of Acts 2, as a form of Christian communalism, that we ought to own no property among us, it's just wrong. Acts 2, 42 through 47, reads like this. And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. And some people read that, they stop there and they say, hey, this is what Christians ought to do today. You ought to take everything you own, you ought to sell it, we ought to come together as a community and we ought to live here. We can put up bunks in the back, okay? We can make this happen. We've got a kitchen, it's pretty big. We can feed all of you. We'll have to eat out quite a bit. But we can do it, okay? But that verse actually goes on to read, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
The issue wasn't that they were giving up all their possessions, but that their possessions didn't mean more to them than their neighbor, their brother in the faith, who struggling with food, struggling with clothing, struggling with shelter, they were willing to sell off what they owned in order to make a way for him. This doesn't mean that they didn't actually own possessions. We know very well that stealing is a part of life. I have been stolen from in my life. When we first moved to Louisville, I had a 2001 Subaru Outback, and uh, one of the first weeks that we were there, that car was broken into and stolen from. The joke was kind of on them because I kept literally nothing in that car, save one thing in my glove box, my owner's manual, which those little punks stole for no good reason other than to simply upset me. That was it. They didn't own a 2001 Subaru Outback. There's no chance of that. It was probably in the weeds two blocks down the road. They did it just to upset me. Sometimes possessions are stolen from you, but other things can be stolen as well. In 1997, there was a very famous movie came out called Titanic, and I had a girlfriend at the time, and so we went to see Titanic. Titanic is a story about a woman who was in privilege. She was going to marry a gentleman who was also of privilege, and he bought her a ticket on this incredibly luxurious liner and they were going to sail to America but she didn't really care for him and everything that he gave to her and so she complained and and grumbled about it went up to a deck to kill herself and she was found by the way total spoilers this is 20 years ago so get over it people she went up to the deck to kill herself where a little cabin boy found her and they fell in love and mixed in with this was this necklace of this huge diamond this very rare diamond Well, eventually, the guy who she was engaged to finds out about the other affair, and this is a big deal. The boat sinks, and people fall on rudders and all this good stuff. Turns out that the woman had, the the gentleman who she was engaged to, that she cheated on, that necklace belonged to him, right? She ended up keeping the necklace, only to throw it overboard 80 years later, while he committed suicide in 1929. In other words, it's a horrible movie with a horrible plot, with horrible people as actors, and I was subjected to this thing for three hours. I will never get those hours back. James Cameron stole from me. Three hours of my life. When I am on my deathbed, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm gonna think I would like three more hours of non-Titanic life, and I can't have that. He stole from me later when I had to watch Avatar, which which literally made me feel more stupid than any other movie that has ever been in existence. That's another issue. James Cameron's stolen from me twice. But we can steal more than just possessions from people. We steal time. We steal dignity. And as we come to Deuteronomy 25, as Moses is explaining these laws to us, we find that there's much more for us to have stolen from us and much more for us to guard against than just taking someone's possessions. We should, then, translate this to make it a little bit more positive. Instead of saying, don't steal, we should talk about what we should do. First, we should protect people's dignity. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, Then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more. Lest, if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded 
in your sight. It is quite clear that this particular passage is geared not towards handing out punishment. It's not the issue of how much punishment you're supposed to hand out, although it's clear that it is in proportion. We know that it's not about the type of punishment because he doesn't even tell us what the type of offense is. It's left very open. It's up to the judge's discretion. So if you've done wrong and you come before a judge and he says that you're wrong, there is a likelihood that beatings will be part of the punishment that's meted out to you. If it's done so, however, it has to be less than 40. Not because 40 is some magical number. Not, not in any way, shape, or form to defend you from dying from the lashings. Although that's probably included here. You'll notice that he doesn't say, so that your brother doesn't die. He says specifically, you can't hit him more than 40 times because he will be degraded in your sight. In other words, you are not allowed to humiliate somebody, to take away their dignity, to take away their humanity by making them something that you beat like a horse or a rock. As a matter of fact, this is almost the exact opposite of what happens in Deuteronomy 17 in reference to the king. There the king is told that you are not to take on many possessions, you're not to take on many chariots, you're not to take on many wives, lest your brothers be devalued in your sight or unless you be exalted above your brothers. The kings are not allowed to think of themselves as better than their brothers and thieves are never allowed to be degraded so that they are below their brothers. They have made an offense, but they are still brothers. Their dignity is to be protected and upheld. Now you might think that that's a little bit weird for a book, whether Deuteronomy or the Old Testament or the law in general, that allows for killing and capital punishment for people who have done wrong. In those cases, however, the killings happen precisely because the person themselves has removed themselves from brotherhood among the people. When you kill somebody, you are saying they are not my brother. You're not treating them as brother. And as a removal of brotherhood from yourself, you're no longer treated as a brother. You have struck down the image of God, and therefore you yourself are struck down. But here, these are still brothers together. We certainly need to be careful about this, not only in terms of humiliation, which is a problem. Some of us have a problem with how we joke with others. It's perfectly fine for people to joke with one another. It's perfectly fine to come together and to make fun of one another so long as everyone gathered there understands that it's done in love and in care. So I can talk about Pastor Doug, although I won't start making jokes about him now, given the context, but I can later, and maybe I will, where we are making fun of one another, but he knows that I love him. I'm not trying to degrade him in that. It's fun for both of us, okay? Yes, he cries every so often, but underneath that, he is happy, okay? But we know, and we can joke around with one another, but when you do that in such a way, only and strictly to humiliate people, especially people you don't know, you have gone beyond, gone beyond joking, and you have done it simply to degrade them, to make them lower and less than you. Certainly a much broader and wider extension of this is simply in terms of racism, and every tribe, tongue, nation, and people are amongst those who you will call brother and sister. Degrading any race as being below you, as thinking that you are superior to them in any way, in any way, automatically makes you better than brothers and sisters of that race. 
It is unconscionable for a person of God to ever think that racism in any way, shape, or form is ever okay. All this does is it cheapens those people. It cheapens the work of Christ in them, and therefore it cheapens Christ himself. You must protect people's dignity. Second, you must pay people their earned wage. Verse 4 says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. This is technically happening in your midst because Paul turns around in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 and 1 Timothy 5, 18. He talks about the fact that pastors, those who work in the gospel for your sake, are what God is concerned about here. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, that is here, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, certainly I'm as stupid as an ox at times, but I'm not an ox. And so his point is that it's not for oxen that God is concerned. Certainly does he not speak for our sake. That is, he is speaking this to you, that while people work, they deserve to get paid. Now, Paul's application of that is directly tied to pastors, and it's directly tied to the apostles who have brought the word of God to the Corinthians. He says, we deserve to get paid. Now, the context is why Paul has not been paid from them, but this statement stands in 1 Timothy Uh, 5.18, Paul reiterates that. The laborer is worthy of his wages. You shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Here, though, it's not specifically talking about pastors, but in general, it's talking about anybody who works. They are earning payment. They deserve to be paid for what they've done. Now, the Bible is really general when it comes to stuff like this, and we ought to be thankful for it. The Bible does not set a minimum wage by which people should be paid. It doesn't tell you that by working any job for 40 hours, you have to earn a living wage, and specifically, it never says what that living wage would possibly be. However, we must be careful because the clear impetus of this passage is not how little can we pay people but to ensure that Christians are generous with their payment. It doesn't say, make sure you give the ox just enough to plow, but it says specifically that you shall not muzzle an ox, that he deserves to eat. The idea here is not on limiting, but it's making sure that there's enough. Christians ought to be always generous with people. The concern is not in paying too little, is in paying too little and not in paying too much. Christians should always push for fair and equitable wages for people. Now, it is up for us to figure out what that looks like in our present context, but that is clearly what God is getting at here. Third, we must perform our responsibilities. Perform your responsibilities. Beginning in verse 5, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal, off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, oftentimes when we talk about marriage and we talk about the duties of men and the duties of women, especially when one of them dies, and we talk about single women, oftentimes what it comes down to, especially in widows, is a financial aid. That the reason why a lot of these Old Testament laws are crafted and shaped and formed the way they are is to make sure that the woman has financial aid. That is clearly not the issue here. She is instructed particularly not to go out of the house. Okay? That is, if she is to remain in the house, it is clear that that house is guaranteeing her safety and well-being. They are always to provide for her. It actually has very little to do with her and it has everything to do with the dead brother. The problem here is not for her well-being. The problem here is that the son, there is no son for that man. His name is not going to be brought through in life. It seems like a weird thing for us. Why does that matter so much? Why is it that perpetuating a line is important? If for no other reason, and there probably are many other reasons, ancient Israelites could not keep memories the way that we do. They just couldn't. One of the, the fun things that's happened in recent years is Bree has, uh, Bree's family, her, her mother and father, have hours and hours and hours of VHS tapes that they've converted to DVDs. And so every once in a while, we'll go over there and we can watch videos of her doing gymnastics and, and just growing up in general. I mean, it's no Titanic, but, but it's, it's a good, it's good film, right? And so we can go there and we can watch those things. But we, our children now have pictures in their heads of what their parent was like when she was younger. Even if, God forbid, Bree died today, they would have lasting video memories of her, whether in audio recordings, video recordings, photographs. They would have written documentation of who she was, the kind of things that she left behind. The ancient Israelites would have none of that. People lived on only in terms of memory. And that son was guaranteed the memory of his father because his father would be the dead brother, not the living brother. The brother, for whatever reason, and it's not explicit here, refuses to do his duty. And so he is shamed before everyone. If we read on, even the strange verses of 11 and 12 probably, probably are along these same lines. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. The idea there is probably not just a grabbing, but a wounding in such a way that having any further children is not allowable by that man. We're not talking about an accident. We're talking about fierce, fierce action on her part so that that man can no longer have any more progeny. She has not allowed him to carry on his responsibility, and she has taken it away from him. She has stolen from him a future. We are always to be people who have responsibilities. And by not performing those responsibilities to family members, by not performing those responsibilities within the church, you are stealing from your brothers and sisters. Listen, within the church, we know that God has given a plurality of gifts to people. You have been gifted by God. You are to use that gift for the good of the body. Not using the gift that God has given to you is not a mark of humility. It's theft. 
You are stealing from the body of believers. You are taking your responsibility and the good thing that God has given to you and you are keeping it for yourself or neglecting it altogether. You might think that it is trivial. You might think that it is minimal. You might think that it is unworthy of being used, but God has given it to you to use. And even if you don't know what it is, your responsibility is to figure it out. Not doing what you are responsible to do within the church family is theft. Just like fathers who do not do what they ought to do to their families and with their families are stealing from them. They are stealing fatherhood from sons. They are stealing fatherhood from their daughters. They are stealing help and kindness from their wives. Same thing with negligent moms. Same thing, frankly, for children who do not do what they are required to do. By being negligent in our responsibilities, we are stealing from others. Fourth, let us promote fairness. Let us promote fairness. Verses 13 through 16 talks about the fact that you are not to have two kinds of weights, a large and a small. The idea being the large is probably the correct weight, so you five pounds is an actual five-pound weight, but then you've got another weight that's much smaller that you call five pounds. So when you put on there and someone else is measuring out their grain, instead of getting five pounds of grain, they think they're getting five pounds, but they're getting two pounds of grain. Now, that might be a little bit brazen, but nevertheless, this kind of thing happened repeatedly in the Old Testament. People cheated one another by shorting one another on the very initial buying. They've cheated the system, in other words. We cannot be the kind of people who cheat the system. This is why we have laws against false advertising, right? So when you buy a box of Fruit Loops and it puts that huge Fruit Loop on it, you don't open it up thinking there's one huge Fruit Loop in there, right? It says enlarged for texture or something like that, which is a bummer because it kind of be cool. But nevertheless, we know that that's not the case and they have to say that so that they're not leading anybody astray. We believe that false advertising is wrong, not just because it's inherently wrong, but because it's providing an idea that you are not actually giving. It's stealing from people. It's not promoting fairness. Same thing happens when people are buying services that they don't know. Most of us are not auto mechanics. We have to trust that the auto mechanic is being faithful to us in what he's telling us is wrong with our car. We have to trust that furnace repairmen are actually being honest with us in what they say is wrong with our furnace because most of us don't know. Frankly, those guys could come in and they could tell us anything is wrong with our furnace and outside of getting a second opinion, we'd have to kind of believe them because we don't know. It is stealing, stealing to lie about that kind of stuff. We have to be the kind of people who promote fairness. Not just in goods, but also in reputation and in words. You are to be fair to people. When people say something, you have to interpret it in the light that they wanted it to be taken in. You're not allowed to take people's words and twist it so that it sounds like you wanted it to sound. When you summarize people's positions, you're not to be unfair to them by categorizing or basically miscategorizing what opinion they hold. That is unfair, and it's a form of stealing from them. It's plagiarizing, and it's doing it badly. We should always be the kind of people who promote fairness. And lastly, we are to be the kind of people who prize the glory of God. 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary 
and cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from, from under heaven. You shall not forget. As they were wandering through the desert, Amalek had the brazen idea that he could attack a weak people because they were God's people. He didn't honor and fear God. That's the most important part here is the end of verse 18. He did not fear God. He didn't give God the glory that was due. He didn't recognize God's glory as it was trailing in front of him. He didn't see the people of God as embodying the glory of God. And so he took it upon himself to attack God's glory. This particular theme is a theme that's woven throughout Scripture and actually ends before the New Testament begins, but it's a credibly interesting story. This is the downfall of an Israelite king and the exaltation of a man in exile. 1 Samuel 15, 1-3 says this, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint, this is when Saul is king, Samuel is the chief prophet in the land. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, so this is important. The very moment, the very moment that Israel puts a king in charge, this is what God tells him, first of all, to do. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You are to wipe them off of the face of the earth and anything that they've touched. Saul, a mighty man, goes to war and he thoroughly destroys them. With the exception... Agog, the king of the Amalekites, and sheep and oxen that Saul, for whatever reason, claims he is going to offer as a sacrifice. He comes back, Samuel comes back and he says, you have been disobedient to the Lord. And he says, I don't know what you mean. I haven't been disobedient. Verse 20, Saul says to Samuel, verse 20, verse 20 of 1 Samuel 15, Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Well, Samuel's going to turn around and be like, dude, no obedience is still no obedience. You were told to destroy everything. Now, the reason why that particular bit is important is because when we come to a book much, much later in the Bible and much, much later in time, the book of Esther, a book that many people have troubles with because it never mentions God, we read this in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, that is, after the promotion of Esther to queen in placement of Vashti, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, who was a Jew, did not bow down or pay homage. The question is why? Why? You'll notice it is not bowing down and worshiping. This isn't a Daniel situation. They weren't told to worship him. It is unthinkable that the king would have set a man on a throne and said, you were to worship this man. 
If anybody, you were going to do that to Ahasuerus, but that's not what they were doing. They were paying homage to him as a great and noble man, but Mordecai doesn't. Why? Scripture goes out of its way to say that this Haman was an Agagite. You might remember that name from King Agag, who was an Amalekite, the only survivor of the Amalekites. And the rest of the book of Esther is a book about how Mordecai fights Haman and destroys him, defeating the rest of the Amalekites and fulfilling God's word that he would blot them out from the face of the earth. God protects his people and he destroys those who stand against him. He destroyed them. The entire book of Esther is pointed at this. He destroys them precisely because they have robbed God of glory. They took from God what was rightfully his glory and honor that he devoted to his people. No one was to touch his people, and especially when they were weary and they were faint. And he thought that he had easy plunder there. He thought that he could go in and plunder what was God's. And God said, no, I will wipe you off of the earth because of that. Let there be no doubt that when we talk about stealing, when we talk about theft, the first thing that comes to mind is often the stealing of someone else's property. But biblically, the thing that we steal most often is God's glory. Standing in sin against God is the theft of his glory for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is, they fall short of giving God the glory that he is due. That is the very essence of sin. The essence of sin is both idolatry, it is covetousness, and it's theft. You are taking what God is rightfully due and giving it to another. This is the idea in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't do what they should have done. What God was owed because he has created them was honor and thanksgiving and they removed it from him and gave it to others. They stole it from him and handed it to four-legged creatures, birds of the air, fish in the sea, and even themselves. This is who we are. We are thieves. You might have kept your hand from other people's things. And you might have thought, in doing so, I am fulfilling the Eighth Commandment. I'm here to tell you, every single one of you has robbed from God. Every single one of us. And in light of that, stealing anything is minimal. Those things that are perishable, that pass away, that moth and rust destroy, are worthless compared to the almighty glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son and the Holy Spirit whom they send to comfort us. That glory is awesome and worthy of all of our lives. To steal from that is worthy of death. And so all of the praise should go to Christ who has kept us from dying for our theft. He has paid the penalty for that so that we might not have to pay the penalty for the theft that we have done. We are thieves, a lot of us. Everyone in here who is a sinner has stolen and stolen repeatedly in our lives. Perhaps you have withheld your hand from the possession of others, those things that don't belong to us but none of us have withheld our hands from God's glory. 
we have dipped into that and removed it brazenly before God. We have all soiled that glory. We have diminished it, and we have treated other things with the glory that is due only to God. The only remedy for this, the only way that we can escape the punishment for this sin is to turn to Christ for forgiveness. We turn to Christ not only to forgive our sin, but also to eliminate it, to give us a longing and a love for the glory of God, for us to know him, to see him, and to understand it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is his gift to you. Not only that Jesus has died, this is in in a passage coming off of 2 Corinthians 3, where the veil of Moses is brought down, and so the people who read the Old Testament outside of Christ don't even know what they're reading. They They can't see the glory of Christ richly throughout the Old Testament. They don't see it there, and so they deny it. And God says, I have kept you from stealing from me because I have removed the veil from you. I have spoken, and now you see my glory in Christ. We turn to him because we know not only that we can be forgiven, but that his kingdom and righteous rule are perfect. And that this world that is so bent on stealing from us, just as we have stolen from God, all that we have given, including life and breath and all things, this world, death and Satan, are intent on stealing from you everything, including your life. That is why we trust that Christ is making a better place for us. A kingdom where our treasures are safe, where neither rust nor moth destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. We trust not only that Christ will do this, but that he gives us a possession forever that we ourselves can never be stolen from Christ. Those who are in my hand, no one can take out. So we trust him. We trust him to provide a kingdom where our treasures are safe. We trust him to provide us a way to that kingdom. This is the kingdom that we long for. This is the place that we long for where we are no longer thieves and thieves no longer threaten us. We only get that by trusting Christ. So let us turn and praise his amazing grace and sing of the fact that we get to dwell with him in perfect unity without any danger from the outside, knowing that our possessions are safe, knowing that our treasures are safe, knowing that nothing of any good will ever be taken from us again. And for 10,000 years, it will be brand new again. Let us praise God. Father, we are thankful that you have kept us from being a thieving people. Although we once were, we stole from you. We are no different than the thief on a cross who stole from others. We took of that which was yours and yours alone and gave it to others. We have stolen from you continuously by our sin. But by the work of Jesus Christ, you have taken that sin as far as the east is away from the west. You have removed it from us. You have given us new hearts that long for you and and seek, Father, your glory. May we give it to you today. May you be, Father, honored and glorified by the glory that we give to you, not because we are adding anything extra to it, but because we are recognizing that which we stole before. We are recognizing, Father, that you are glorious and worthy of all honor and praise, as is the Son, Jesus Christ, to whom we will bow the knee and confess that he is Lord over all things. And of course, we do this only through the Spirit.
who guides us and directs us in all knowledge, who removes the veil from us that we might recognize the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Enable our voices to sing that you might be glorified by us. In Jesus' name, amen.